millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long forgotten murders. All set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about the murder of William Raven, an elegant, sociable divorcee and co-owner of a gentleman's outfitters, who was found battered to death in his own bed. Everybody liked him, but was this a bungled robbery, a revenge attack, or was it something a little more ordinary? Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock, and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 104, The Elementary Murder of William Raven. Today, I'm standing on Baker Street in Marlebone, NW1, three streets west of the photographic studio where John Reginald Christie took naked snaps of one of his victims. One road south of the Regent's Park barracks where the Blackout Ripper was arrested. A ten-minute walk from the Regent's Business School, where Martin Vic Magnuson first met the cowardly billionaire's son who became her killer. And a short dawdle from the odd but unsolved murder of Gladys Hanrahan. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Up by the tube station, at the junction of Marleybone Road, the north side of Baker Street, is a real disappointment to millions of excitable tourists who flock to stand next to a semi-sort of look-alike waxwork of a pseudo-celebrity nobody at Madame Tussauds, only to realise there's nothing else here. Nothing but smog, smoke, bogs and bedsits, choked by the belching buses on a death trap of a road. Baker Street is famous for a few things, there's Jerry Rafferty's sax solo, which every busker is forced to play every hour of every day, or risk losing their license to rip off real artist records. 
the home of celebrated sci-fi author H.G. Wells, which is only memorialized by a very small plaque. An obscure tribute to the Beatles, who fled their beloved Liverpool faster than they forgot how to say And of course, there's the infamous residence of fictional detective Sherlock Holmes. Still being as smoggy and murder-strewn as it once was, at 221B Baker Street sits the Sherlock Holmes Museum, a shrine to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's literary creation, where avid fans fork out actual cash to ooh at the deerstalker this imaginary character never wore, ah at the pretend pipe that this made-up detective never smoked, and wow at an out-of-work actor sitting behind a blatantly fake desk that Sherlock never sat at. Only to get to the gift shop and realise that the TV series were once books. But as these museum patrons queue up, they have no idea that, directly opposite, on the sixth floor of 236 Baker Street, was once a real murder. A baffling mystery, so odd, it initially had the detectives perplexed. But through dogged persistence and a clinical investigation, the police would have it solved. As it was here, on Thursday the 15th of October 1942, in flat 34 of Chalfon Court, that William Raven's death looked like a case for the great detective himself. And yet its solution was elementary. Murder, my dear Watson. Refined, cold-blooded murder. Murder? There's no doubt about it in my mind. Or perhaps I should say in my imagination. But that's where crimes are conceived and where they're solved. In the imagination. Real murders are rarely as thrilling as they appear in detective stories. The victims and killers are almost always connected, whether as family, friends, lovers or rivals. Their motives are usually clear, whether wealth, love, revenge or pride. And although a tale full of plot twists makes for a gripping story, real murders are rarely premeditated, carefully planned or cleverly executed. Killing is an act of extreme emotion. So being desperate to flee, murderers rarely leave clues or red herrings. The murder of William Raven has all of the tropes of a locked room mystery. A respected businessman is found beaten to death in his own bed on the sixth floor of a secure mansion block. The door was locked from the inside, the key was in place, and there were no signs of a break-in. Nobody heard a sound or saw anything strange, and although they hadn't touched anything of any value, these burglars had stolen two pounds from the victim's wallet, a pair of shoes, a fawn suit, and oddly, two pairs of white underpants. And yet, even more bafflingly, having been seen by several witnesses that night, in the flat, the killers would leave their fingerprints, a pair of boots, a dirty uniform, 
and two sets of soiled underpants. Giving the police a big clue to their description, occupation and eventually their names. But was this an unplanned murder, a message or a masterclass in deception and misdirection by a cunning criminal? Well, Mr. Holmes. Interesting. Very interesting. So, who was the victim? Born on the 26th of November 1900, 41-year-old William Raven, known to his associates as Bill, was an elegantly dressed bachelor and well-regarded director of Horseman and Raven, a gentleman's outfitters for the city's well-heeled and high-status clientele, based at 80 Regent Street, near Piccadilly Circus. Raised in Leeds, although his modest northern roots were hidden by a cut-glass English accent, being keen to be seen as prosperous and cultured, even as a boy he was immaculate and polite, with dreams of being finely dressed in a tailored suit, handmade shoes, and a silk scarf in his top pocket. As an apprentice, seen as a skilled tailor, William worked hard to learn his craft, and through long hours, patience, an innate sense of style, and a meticulous eye for detail, he established a solid reputation amongst the society elite. Financially, he had some money, but every penny was invested in the shop. His shop's manager was an old and trusted friend, his business partner was like the brother he never had. They had no rivals, no debts, no threats. And although being wartime, they had the savings to weather the storm. Very little cash was kept on the premises and his killers had never visited the shop. In terms of family, he had very little left except for a married sister in Leeds. Sadly, his parents had long since deceased. He had amicably divorced from his wife, and as she had recently passed away, their two boys, John and Alan, were being raised by their mother's parents in Cockermouth. As families go, they weren't close, but there were also no disputes, no secrets, and nothing which raised suspicion. During the war, being too old, too small, but more importantly, a pacifist, William did his duty as manager of the Merchant Navy Supply Association, issuing and repairing uniforms for military units, including a few bespoke orders for the Special Operations Executive, who just two years earlier had recruited the super spy Christine Grenville, and who were based only a few doors down from his Baker Street flat. And yet, although an interesting detail, William was not a spy, a soldier or a secret agent. Socially, William was a real character and being just five at five, with a slim frame, pale skin, elfin-like features, black swept-back hair and a pug-like nose, he was well-known and easy to spot. He was charming, chatty and generous. He preferred wine, but drank rum or ale to suit his guests. He didn't gamble, fight, argue or do drugs. He was never nasty or rude, and he treated everyone with equal respect. 
sexually since his divorce. Although it was still illegal, William had come out as a gay man. Feeling free, he kept a diary of his sexual conquests, but wasn't looking for a lover as he preferred the thrill of anonymous sex with a stranger. Usually there were rough-looking squaddies from tough backgrounds, many of which he picked up in gay-safe pubs like the York Minster on Dean Street, the Swiss Tavern on Old Compton Street and the Volunteer opposite his flat on Baker Street, where he always ate his nightly supper. And that's pretty much it. William Raven was a businessman who wasn't rich, a widower who wasn't disliked, and a gay man who wasn't being blackmailed or bullied. He had no jealous lovers, no business rivals, no criminal connections, no secret past, and no family feuds. His death made no sense. Of course, this could have been an attack on a known homosexual, but we know that wasn't the case. What? My conjecture is that he'll be murdered. Murdered? It'll be very interesting to see if my deductions are accurate. So, if this was a robbery, believing this to be a two-man job, as three sets of fingerprints, including Williams, were found, how did they get in? How did they get out? Why did they steal just enough cash to last one person for two days, but left behind his silver cigarette case silver lighter and silver wristwatch? Why did they steal nothing of value from his flat? Just a fawn-coloured suit, a set of shoes and two pairs of white underpants. And yet they left behind a military uniform. Was this uniform his? Were his killers military? Or was this somehow connected to his business? Strangely, even though he had only lived at 236 Baker Street for 13 weeks. This wasn't the first and only unusual robbery which had occurred at Flat 34. On Sunday the 11th of October 1942, although there were no signs of a break-in, burglars had stolen every single item of his clothes. But once again, in a strange similarity, they touched nothing else. No art, no jewellery, no electricals, and no paperwork. Was this copycat robbery just a coincidence? An insurance scam? A wartime crime of high-quality suits in short supply to be sold on the black market? Or was this heist merely a ruse to gain entry to the sixth-floor flat in a secure mansion block as part of a premeditated, carefully planned, and cleverly executed murder. Rightly, he reported this burglary to the police, but there was very little they could do. And four days later, William Raven would be brutally beaten to death in his own bed. Still some gaps to be filled in, but all in all, things are becoming a little clearer. Not to me, I assure you. Still a hopeless jumble. Put it all together and what have you got? Murder, my dear Watson. Thursday the 15th of October 1942 was William's last day alive. Only he wouldn't know that, as compared to any other day, 
it was neither odd, unpleasant, nor remarkable. After a good breakfast of egg, toast, and tea, most of his morning was spent in his flat, where a young, handsome locksmith replaced his door lock, as a precaution, having just been burgled. With his shop under the care of its manager, Wallace Staggle, William had a spot of lunch with an old pal in Soho. He did a stock check at the Merchant Navy Supply Association, and visited several outfitters in the West End, as he liked to keep abreast of the current trend in men's fashions. At 3 p.m., dressed in a blue pinstripe suit, a white shirt, a dark tie, and a black pair of shoes, William popped into his Regent Street shop. And regaled Wallace with his tale of this unusual burglary. As was common practice, Wallace gave his boss twenty pounds in one-pound notes out of the till, which he signed for, and to temporarily replace his missing clothes, into a bag, William packed a stylish but inexpensive fawn suit, two white shirts, two pairs of white socks, and two pairs of white underpants. Identical to the ones which would be stolen, and then he left. His mood was upbeat and relaxed. That evening, being in his usual good spirits, William and an unidentified gentleman known only as George met for drinks at the York Minster, a gay-safe pub at 49 Dean Street in Soho. As the camaraderie flowed. Drinks were sunk, and the hot bodies mingled in a tightly packed bar. William's roving eye was instantly attracted to two boys, who were just his type. Being half his age, with a come-hither finger, he beckoned forth two short, slim, but well-built boys in their early twenties. And as the mirror opposites to his elegant refinement and high-class sophistication, these two Canadian soldiers were both scruffy. Uncouth and rough-looking, but that was exactly the type that William liked. Greeting these two cuties by cooing, "Call me Bill," and engaging them in a bit of saucy banter, William made every stranger feel like a friend. And having treated both boys to a few cheeky beers, a little light supper, and having shockingly discovered that they hadn't booked a hotel for the night. Having sunk a few more beers at the notorious homosexual hangout known as the Swiss Tavern on Old Compton Street, William and his two new pals left the pub at 10:30 p.m., caught the Bakerloo line to Baker Street, and as had become a routine for a gay bachelor with a capacious sexual appetite, William and the two young soldiers entered flat 34 of Chalfont Court. They were happy, laughing. And a little bit tipsy. That night, they sat, chatted, drank, and with not one witness hearing a single sound, they all went to bed. The next day, William was found dead, and once again, a very odd robbery had occurred. That's why so many murders remain unsolved, Watson. People will stick to facts, even though they prove nothing. Now, if we go beyond facts, use our imagination as the criminal does. We usually find ourselves justified. Detective novels thrive on many devices to make a humdrum killing seem more thrilling. 
by adding plot twists, misdirection, red herrings, and duplicitous characters, with the big clues being nothing, and the smallest of details being everything. Sherlock Holmes knew that the solution to any case was down to the arrogance of the criminal mastermind, who would make a tiny but elementary mistake. Real murders are usually self-explanatory, but strangely, the murder of William Raven was not. Almost all victims and killers have long established connections, but in this case, they weren't. Their motives are usually clear, whether wealth, love, revenge or pride, only this time it wasn't. And although real murders are rarely premeditated, this murder looked entirely spontaneous. But was it? At 9.40am, Williams Cleaner unlocked the outer door to flat 34, but found that the inner door was locked from within. She left, alerted no one, and was the only other person with a spare key. At 11am, Marjorie Voigt in flat 35, the flat immediately next door, who had heard nothing the night before, saw the morning's newspaper still sticking out of William's letterbox, but didn't notify anyone until three hours later. At 2pm, having informed the head porter, Frederick Bowen climbed up the fire escape, entered the flat via the bathroom window, and in the bedroom, he found the body of William Raven. The room was messy, chaotic, and bloody, but all of the violence had been contained in just one room. Having called the police, at 2.35pm, PC Allen Ireland entered via the fire escape to preserve the crime scene for evidence. Clearly, the tastefully decorated bedroom was one small, neat, and pristine white. But with the plush carpet, scattered with a mishmash of khaki clothes, and the once fragrant air buzzing with feverish flies, who fed off a thick soupy puddle of blood which pulled around the head of the double bed, and slurped at the gloopy spatter which was too dry to drip down the patterned wall. Seeing the slightly built, semi-naked man slumped face down on the floor, with his sweet features beaten into a mushy swollen pulp, PC Island stood guard over the dead body until the detective arrived. At 3.40pm, the police divisional surgeon arrived to confirm that life was extinct. But seeing a subtle rising and falling of the sticky pyjama-clad chest, and a gentle pop as blood bubbles formed about his lips, the PC had missed an important clue. William Raven wasn't dead, but barely alive. A full 12 to 14 hours after his brutal attack, William was rushed to the nearby St. Mary's Hospital, but he died at 6pm. He never regained consciousness. He never identified his attackers. He never gave a statement. And he never said a single word. The last and only independent witness to his murder had been silenced.
Well, Holmes, what do you make of it? Do you think there's anything in it? The only way to solve the case was through the evidence presented before them. And yet, this brutal Baker Street murder didn't have the luxury of being investigated by an infamous detective. But they did have the next best thing. Detective Inspector John Smale. He was smart, methodical, savvy, and best of all, he was real. The crime scene presented the detective with the following pieces of evidence, which suggested that this wasn't a pre-planned murder, but a spontaneous emotive attack and an opportunist robbery. With no sign of a break-in, the front door was the only point of entry, and both men were welcomed in by William, who as a habit, locked the inner door to the flat and popped the key on a hook in a cupboard. In the sitting room, three sets of fingerprints were found on three glasses and a bottle of whiskey, rum and cordial. One man sat in an armchair, two men shared the settee, and at some point, someone briefly slept in the small guest bed in the sitting room. With all but one bottle of white wine consumed, the three men retired to the bedroom. Here they undressed. William hung up his blue pinstripe suit, and the two Canadian soldiers casually dumped their scruffy army-issue uniforms on the floor. At some point during the night, all three men removed their underpants, which were found on the floor. According to his diary, William was a known homosexual who frequented gay-friendly bars and had a capacious sexual appetite. If sex did take place, he didn't note it in his diary. And yet, his post-mortem would confirm that the last three inches of his anus were dilated, congested and smooth, suggesting that, as a passive male, he had engaged in anal sex shortly before his death. So far, this had been a very ordinary evening for William. But abruptly, this good mood would change. The post-mortem, conducted by Sir Bernard Spilsbury, confirmed that William had been subjected to a fast and ferocious attack by one or two men. The six lacerations to the back of his head matched the bloodied raffia of a broken bottle found at his feet, and six heavy blows from a fist to his eye, left hand and mouth caused multiple skull fractures, unconsciousness, and he died of a brain hemorrhage. The telltale signs on the wallpaper of pear-shaped blood spatter in a downward trajectory confirmed that William had been standing at the time of the attack. The smeared bedsheets indicate where he had fallen, and a six-inch pool of blood around his swollen head was consistent with being unconscious for 12 to 14 hours until he was found. So at no point had he been moved. Possibly, out of panic, the killers made no attempt to conceal his body or the crime. They stole nothing of any value, not even the silver lighter, cigarette case or watch. Instead, they took two pounds, a foreign suit, a pair of black shoes, and two sets of white underpants. 
So for Detective Inspector Smale, it was clear that this robbery wasn't an act of greed. This was need. When questioned, none of the witnesses could recall the names of the two Canadian soldiers that William had been seen with that night. But they all agreed that the men were disheveled, penniless, rough-looking, and having nowhere to sleep that night, William had invited them to stay at his flat. On William's bedroom floor lay a crumpled Canadian Army-issue forage cap, a pair of filthy black socks, two sweat-stained khaki shirts, with the label of Warrendale, a uniform manufacturer for the Canadian Army, a very worn pair of Army-issue boots, in size 7, with the soles worn down to the leather, and three pairs of underpants. One made by Horseman and Raven, a gentleman's outfitter on Regent Street, and the other two pairs of underpants were army-issued, and very dirty, smelly, and heavily soiled. Desperate to flee the murder scene, out of panic, they tried to unlock the flat's front door using the three keys they found, rather than the actual key which William had popped on a hook in a cupboard. So unable to lock the inner door, they fled by the bathroom window and out onto the fire escape. Because of the overwhelming evidence, Detective Inspector Smale requested the fingerprints and details of all Canadian soldiers serving in Britain who had been reported missing since the time of the murder, or who were being held under detention for being absent without leave. Admittedly, this was like searching for a needle in a haystack, as the list of possible suspects was huge, the war was raging on, the Canadian army was not compliant, and the interviews would take almost a year. But was the detective right? Was the evidence as simple as it seemed? Was the unplanned murder of William Raven really just a spontaneous attack and an opportunist robbery? Or had this humble copper got it all wrong, having been duped by a cunning criminal in a masterclass of deception and misdirection? On the 17th of July, 1943, after nine long months of interviews, Detective Inspector Smale went to Aero Camp in Headley Down, Hampshire, to question a 21-year-old Canadian private called Henry Smith. With the murder having plagued on his guilty conscience, Henry confessed and named his pal, 21-year-old George Frederick Brinnicum, as the murderer. The evidence supported his story, their fingerprints were an exact match, and being rough-looking young men who wore uniforms and came from difficult backgrounds, although neither, for good reason, admitted that they were gay, they were just the type that William liked. Having enlisted into the army to escape the horrors of their family life, Henry and George absconded from their units at the end of September 1942. But with no plans and very little money, Soon they were hungry, broke, homeless, and their uniforms and boots were worn out, tatty and soiled. In return for companionship and anonymous sex, William Raven offered them food, drink and a bed. 
On the 14th of September 1943, at the Old Bailey, Henry Smith and George Brinnicum were charged with murder. But with no evidence of premeditation, Henry was acquitted and sent back to Canada. And George was found guilty of manslaughter and served just three years in Wormwood Scrubs prison. So you see, sometimes the simplest answer is usually the right one. And although this story has all the hallmarks of a classic locked room mystery, it was really just a very simple tale of two young lads on the run in need of a few basic things. Money, food, a place to sleep, and a clean pair of pants. On the surface, William Raven's death may have looked like a case for the great detective himself. And yet, even Sherlock Holmes himself would agree that its solution was elementary. Good night. Good night. Good night, Mr. Holmes. Good night. Oh, Watson, the needle. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. For me, that's the hard bit done. All the research, all the writing, with just three days of editing to go. And now it's time for the pointless bit, which takes zero effort. In fact, I could probably do it in my sleep. I could, if Eva didn't insist that I'm on hand all night to mix her cocktails. That woman, eh? Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Rhiannon Williams, Christina Hughes, and Julie Davis. I thank you all for your support. It's very much appreciated. With also a big welcome to all new listeners of the Murder Mile podcast, and a special thank you to all the hardcore listeners who've been listening to the podcast since the dawn of time. Murder Mile was researched, written, and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quite well, quite quick. Oh, yay! <laughs> oh, that edit wasn't as difficult as I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be quite a difficult one because it was a bugger to write, but it was. Uh, I didn't make too many mistakes on that, which was good. I think. I think what I'm trying to learn to do now is when you go back to the old episodes, it's a lot more flowery the dialogue, and it used to take hours to record especially it was really difficult with my old laptop where the battery's only three hours and like the record would take longer than that i'd have to stop halfway through but new laptop which lasts like on an edit i can do 10 hours editing straight on it which is great uh but i'm, I'm learning to get a bit faster and actually by doing a podcast every week it's really helped my dyslexia so kind of it's whoosh, i'm flying through stuff now and i'm you know i'm doing a quick read the night before and then I'm practicing and I'm taking my time and it's all working so uh yeah that was a, a quicker record than I'd normally expect what you hear is the edited bit I edit that I go through oh sorry welcome to extra mile I'll get to that in a bit um all the narration you hear is me I've gone through it it's normally like about two hours long I cut it down to about half an hour and then I go through each word and I shape it and I add kind of like you won't notice this but I add like microseconds like sometimes the phrasing is wrong like uh if you say uh they went into William's room and he'd been found murdered that's fine but if sometimes when I listen to it you go oh that's not good so you go they went into William's room had some space and he was found dead much better works much better and also when you when you add sound effects in it's it's, it's a weird sciencey thing but when you add sound effects and music into an edit it makes the spacing between the words shorter it, it's not physically shorter but according to your ear it is because your ear it hears silence longer but it hears sounds shorter so it's it's a weird thing so if, if if i had like a nice big gap i put some music behind it the gap gets shorter so i have to i have to re-stretch everything in there and rebalance everything and you know take stuff out and so anyway oh that was boring right welcome to extra mile we're here hey extra mile We've got lots to get through today so i'm gonna open some windows because it's 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 a weekend where it's going to be a bit hot it's weird it's meant to be kicking into like the 20 uh, high you know, early 30s degrees and stuff like that but it hasn't got gone hot yet which is weird there's a big cloud over uh so i don't know whether we, it's just going to be muggy i think it's going to be muggy and horrible anyway i'm gonna make a tea tea time pop the water in there we go all good, water on, tea bag in, cake at the ready, sugar, one sugar, because I don't want to get too fat. By too fat, I mean fat uh, uh There we go, coming back. Right, let's whiz through things. Oh, luckily, I'm not too far from a Lidl now. I've moved on. 
where I am. It's got no, it's got no birds. It's weird. There's no coots. There's no swans. There's no ducks. There's no nothing. I've got my bread ready. They're not here. Uh, but it's good in a way because that means there's no interruptions. I'm away from the little airport. I'm away from the shit plant. <laughs> so there's no smell. There's n nicely. There's no flies as well. So everything's kind of all right here. Uh, I'm near a kind of a motorway. So there's a motorway in the distance. But I don't think you can hear that. So, uh, and it's quite quiet here, which is really good. So, uh, so yeah, I'm currently hiding under a tree uh, because there's meant to be a heat wave this weekend. The temperature is going to go up to about 32, uh, which when you're in a steel boat, the temperature can go up to like my internal thermometer is like it, it can go up to 42. I've seen it go up to 48 once, and you sit in there and you're sweating away, and there's nothing you can do about it. You have all the windows and doors open, and he's still dying. But oh, little burpee there. A little bit of windy pops so um yeah even even on like a not too hot day if you touch the steel on the outside it can really hurt your hands because it, it picks up the heat so uh i've been keeping busy doing obviously doing murder mile plowing through we got all the episodes to get us through to the uh end of the year and then i can take a little break and i've booked in my boat out for the week so i can do all my repairs and things like that so i'm looking forward to that and then hopefully the archive will still be open and I can get back to the archive and do some more research. I've been planning. There's some good episodes for next year as well. Uh, done a little bit of gardening on the roof, which was good. I've planted some lavender, which has gone nice, and some wild flowers. And I might get rid of my herbs, because I don't think the herbs... I don't really eat the herbs, you know, because they're all covered with aphids. But I like looking at them and smelling them. Uh, what else am I doing? Uh, in preparation for this, I was watching a lot of the Basil Rathbone... Nigel Bruce Shark Holmes films from the 1930s which are really good a lot of them are copyright free so you can watch them on YouTube uh, so I watched Hand of Baskerville's uh, was it Curse of the Pearl Voice of Terror uh, they're a little bit old and clunky what was I watching last night the Scarlet Claw the Scarlet Claw is interesting if you watch that one and you like the new the new well they're not the new but the Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch ones you can see the kind of pieces that they've taken from from the the Sherlock Holmes novels but also from there as well like there's the the Scarlet Claw there's lots of little pieces that you can see that they've uh, popped back in to, to that series uh, so th th they've been really good I've been enjoying them they're a bit old and clunky but I kind of grew up with them because my you know, I'd spend summers at my grand's and my grand liked things that you know she got me into Harold Lloyd and Lowell and Hardy and Columbo and stuff like that so and also the the old Basil Rathbone um, Sherlock Holmes is so if you want a bit of fun go and check those out they're very good I like them don't don't expect like great plots and don't expect like all wizardry with the cameras and all that it's very static and because it's 1930s but you know what they're good fun they really are good fun tea's almost done so tea's almost done and then we're going to get on with the questions then we're going to get into the extra wild stuff because there's a lot of stuff that I had deliberately had to miss out so Water in, let it stew. Oh, those chalky croissants look really good. Right, here's the questions. Don't forget, some may be deleted because I might take them out of the episode. Oh, some might. Uh, oh, let's just do it. Right, question number one. Which famous London landmark was William's shop on Regent Street nearest to? Which famous London landmark on, uh, was William's shop on Regent Street nearest to? 
It's a place we've been to many times on Murder Mile. Uh, question number two. What was the name of William's shop manager? What was the name of William's shop manager? Interesting name, that one. Question three. What three bottles were found in William's sitting room? Question four. How much money did William take from the shop till? So that was the day of the murder because he'd been broken into. How much money did he take from the shop till? Uh, question five. What was the official cause of William's death? Question six. What shape were the blood spatter on his bedroom wall? What shape? Obviously, the blood shape tells you exactly where he was standing. Little clue there. Uh, question seven. What was William's wartime duties? Obviously, everyone during wartime were given duties and given because of his age and his size and his because he was a pacifist. And do you know what? I think more importantly, because of his skills, he was given this job. But what was that job? Question. Uh, that was question seven. So this is question eight. Which science fiction author lived a few doors down from William? Obviously, this science fiction author didn't live there when William lived there, but his 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 flat was there. Mentioned at the start of the show. Uh, that was question eight. Question nine. What three items did William always have on him, but his killers didn't steal? So it's three items he always had on him. And question 10. Name William's three favourite pubs. I almost gave away the answer then. Right, let me try and do this next bit and make sure I try not to give away too much. Right, okay. So, um, when I was sitting down to write this, I was trying to... I, I Deliberately, because there's a little bit of a connection in this story to the... Uh, the do you remember we did a, a burglary one a little while ago where you had the three guys... I, I, I think it's uh, Geraghty was his name? Yeah, uh, over in Bayswater, and the flat got broken into. And the the first story was that they said that they went out and chucked out the wallet. And the second one was they went in, and they beat him up to find out where his safe was. And then the third one looks more like a kind of a torture, a gay sex game gone wrong, because there's a bit a bit of similarity between this one and that one. I decided to write this one very differently uh, because of where Sherlock Holmes is. I used a bit of a Sherlock Holmes motif, motif with that, but also as I was writing it, I was like, well. The interesting thing really about the story is kind of what does the evidence tell you and is it really a, a confusing thing or is it something really simple? And the more I started going through it, I, the more I realised I don't actually need Henry and George anymore, the kind of the killers. I don't really know. Originally they were going to be like halfway through, we learn about them and then we get the, the case. But actually the more I started writing it, the more I was like, no, let's just stick with the evidence and what we see and what we think we see and what, do you know, what looks important and what isn't important. And actually sometimes when you look at things, as you said at the end, the simplest story is, is most logical. So, as I mentioned in there, there was an earlier burglary, literally four days before, at uh, William's flat. Um, now, uh, the police did look into this. It was four days before. It was Sunday, the 11th of October. The flat had been entered by thieves. Every article of clothing had been stolen. Uh, the police did look at it. There wasn't any fingerprints at the time. Um... Uh, 
yeah. So, so um, and the so there's a real coincidence with that between the 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 the, the burglary murder of which some of William's clothes were taken. Um, to be honest, most of his clothes were taken because the the burglars had already taken clothes before. But why would they come back and nick more clothes if they didn't know that he he, he hadn't got any left? It doesn't make sense. Uh, anyway. Um, the police did look into it. There's not really a lot they can do. They couldn't find any fingerprints. But if you think about this case, it looks less like a burglary. A burglary. This first one. If you think about it, think about the this final one that we've just done. These were two young, kind of dishevelled men, uh, waifs and strays, the kind of thing that William like came around to his flat. Um, obviously, a bit of a to-do happened. William ended up dead, uh, and they stole some of his clothes. Uh, because they needed fresh clothes and they needed a bit of money. But if you think about it, maybe with this earlier one, maybe he brought back another waif and stray. Maybe that waif and stray, who knows, tied him up or stole his key or some, because there was no sign of a break-in, came back into the flat, then stole all, all of his clothes. So the, the the reason why it was probably never solved by the police is probably William could probably couldn't give them all the information. He probably couldn't say to them, do you know what, I picked up a young gay man, I'm a gay man, we were coming back for gay sex. He beat me up or tied me up and nicked my key. So it's unlikely he could give the full information to the police. Um, uh, as I said, you know, it, 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 there, there seemed to be no sign of a break-in, which suggests that the burglar used a key. Uh, so uh, that's in there. I've put that in there. That's a, a, one of those little red herrings that I've thrown in there. But, um, you know, it doesn't really amount to much. So let's look at the killers themselves. Uh, I, I was going to give you a whole, like, 10 minute bit about them but in the end I thought do you know what we've kind of summed it up they are exactly the type that William like they're kind of do you know not exactly tall slim but well built wearing Canadian uniforms young do you know half his age uh coming from difficult backgrounds so let's kind of dig into it a little bit more they were both five foot seven which is about William's height uh, slim but well built uh, you got George Frederick Brinnicum private in the royal canadian army service corps uh for the 47th general field transport company he was 21 years old born in montreal canada uh on the 15th of january 1922 he was described as undisciplined dishonest uh his father and mother uh at the time lived in still lived in montreal he was the second oldest of 10 uh three girls and seven boys he was said to be not a happy family life uh, parents were always arguing children were undisciplined father had served in world war one in the uh, 42nd battalion royal highlanders of canada he was wounded in uh, 1918 in france and he lost his right foot and since then has been living on disability pension so obviously uh, family life is difficult because they can't really earn much money he's on 40 percent income his father and the rest is supported by the church uh, George attended school, passed with honours, so he's quite clearly you know, he's got a good, good bit of intelligence on him. Went to Montreal High School. Uh, he did one year, uh, and then he got a job as a golf caddy. Uh, he kind of floundered around for a bit, wasn't really too sure what to do. Then, obviously, war started, uh, as many young men. So uh, he enlisted, really just to escape his family. Uh, he arrived in the UK on the 8th of February 1940, uh, described as not a good soldier. And from that point onwards, he got worse. If you think about it, he's, he's undisciplined. He, he, none of them have criminal records. None of them have violent past. None of them are bad lads. They just 
they just don't like where they are and they don't like their life and it's just like they just don't want to be there and they could just feel kind of stuck i'm not trying to give them excuses but you know they're not you know they're not master criminals <laughs> they are just just lads really the other one henry smith known as smithy he was 20 uh his parents married in england his mother had a previous son to uh, had a son to a previous marriage his father thomas smith had three other sons by a previous marriage one of whom was henry so a bit of a fragmented family there uh he moved to canada in 1928 they had two sons and two daughters since then so same as the other one multiple uh large family he probably feels a bit a bit left out um uh, uh he served on a farm near prince albert over in canada his parents were also farmers uh, he did not get on well with his father or the rest of his family um family had a reputation for being ungovernable it was quite they were quite isolated they kept to themselves they weren't liked by their neighbors uh, said that the mother kept a bad house that means kind of untidy father was a heavy drinker children all had bad upbringings uh henry attended higstrom school he quit at age 15 and became a farm laborer worked in a sawmill joined the army in 1941 so he'd only been in the army for one year before the murder itself happened um uh he said he didn't really get a solid schooling uh he could read a little but he cannot write uh he was described as of low intelligence but was neither of them were declared mentally defective and were both found fit to stand trial uh, his job in the army was to repair and service motor vehicles um in court they said all of the parents were described as not being the type to set a good example to their children um but when you look at these boys henry and george none of them are violent sorts they're not drunks they come from bad backgrounds they're just really in search of love attention they're unsure of who they are they don't like authority uh but you know that we don't there's no criminal background there at all both enlisted as mentioned really just to escape their families and i guess as a lot of young men did um none of we'll get into this very shortly um are either of them gay it's unsure don't forget being gay was illegal both uh well in, especially in the united kingdom it was uh, illegal up until 60s wasn't it i can't remember the the date off the top of my head um so it's unsure whether they were both gay or whether one of them was gay or whether they they were both secretly gay but hadn't told each other or there's a lot of that going on obviously being in the forces obviously they're having to be a little bit cautious here if they were gay men obviously they couldn't say we were gay men we were in a gay pub we met with a gay man we went back to a gay man's house to have some gay sex obviously they can't say that because you know not only would they be kicked out of the army which is probably what they want but they would be arrested for being gay because it's an illegal uh and, and if you admit that you're having gay sex you know people it was it wasn't too too long prior to that that people were still being executed in this country for having gay sex so um you can you can understand how cautious they are about about being this um let's see okay um uh, the day of the murder don't forget uh, i think i've got more information on this shortly hang on let me whiz on a bit let me whiz on a bit hang on i'm trying to think i've got details about ah here here they are okay so um 
end of September, uh, they decided to go on uh, AWOL, absent without leave, which basically meant you, you could get a pass to get in and out of your barracks and to go on leave, but you were normally given like a, like a chitty that says, you know, you can uh, you can go on leave for like two days, but then you need to be back here in, in 24 hours. If you look at the William Richard Rhodes Henley episode, the guy, the the a pornographic Canadian sailor, he had like a leave uh, for I think it was two days, and he had to be back in Southampton. Uh, at the end of that second day uh, to get back on his ship otherwise he'd, he would be absent without leave these guys were the same uh, so it was end of September I think it was yeah, 29th of September they went absent without leave uh, they hadn't really planned anything they hadn't they got a kit, kit bag with them but uh, they hadn't really got much in it they got the uniform that they were wearing obviously they wore the uniform because that A it's the only really clothes that they've got and B, it's kind of, you know, if you're stopped by a policeman and you're wearing a uniform, that's fine. You just say, we're on leave. That's fine. But, you know, if you're, if you're in civvies and you're of service age, obviously the policeman can say, why aren't you serving? What's going on? Uh, so uh, they'd been away for about two weeks. They hadn't got uh, slightly longer than two weeks. It's almost three weeks they'd been away. Obviously, they've got nowhere to live. They've got nowhere to wash. They they hadn't got any clean cha- changes of clothes, especially no underpants. Their army boots were pretty much worn out. Um, they'd they'd stayed with a couple of friends a couple of days. They'd managed to scrape together some money and stayed uh, a couple of nights at the YMCA in Croydon, which is way down in South London. Oh, me tea, me tea. I left me tea to stew. Don't want to do that. Imagine missing out on my tea. Oh, got shortbread as well. Oh, life is good. Uh, yeah, so YMCA in Croydon, down in South London. Uh, uh, yeah, and then uh, on the 15th, so that's the day off, they, they went to Soho. Um, they went into the York Minster on Dean Street. Oh, frick, I just pretend you didn't hear that. Uh, they met William Raven. Uh, obviously, that pub uh, is a known homosexual pub. Uh, that's why William was there. If you look at all the reports by everyone at the time, especially by the police, it's always say, they always say it's frequented by perverts and sodomites. Do you know? Uh, basically, uh, any, any pub that contains... Uh, homosexuals is always described as perverts and, and sodomites. Uh, so uh, anyone who's in there who gives a witness statement, it's unlikely that they would be believed. Uh, this it was that era. So, um, but at that point they had no premeditation of robbery or murder, which is why why uh, Henry was found not guilty of murder or robbery, and uh, George was found guilty. They say manslaughter, but really, if if you look at the the amount of time he served, it was pretty much just an assault, which led to murder, which is why it was a manslaughter charge. Uh, but at that point, they had no plans to rob anyone. Literally, they met with William. William was nice. He bought them th- some drinks. They'd actually offered to buy him some drinks back. They hadn't got a lot of money on them. He saw that, and he was like, no, 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 no. look, this is my treat. Uh, I'm going to buy you some drinks. I'm going to buy you some meals. And they were like, we don't have anywhere to stay. And he was like, that's fine. Come back to mine. You can stay at mine. Not a problem at all. Uh, It's clear that 
well, it's not clear um, whether they knew that William was gay or not. Everyone else says that William was definitely gay, uh, even on the police records. Like Stanley James Darcy, who was one of the witnesses there. The police records state Sta Stanley James Darcy, who is definitely a homosexual. It's that era when the, poli when the police like have to state this. Uh, it's, uh, where were they so uh, yeah no invited back to his flat uh, we'll, we'll get into the details of what happened in the flat very shortly they obviously they went to a few pubs they had some food George who was the, the, the kind of plump guy wearing the, the makeup uh, he left uh, so it was just the three but, and they went back to the flat so Charles Boglin and his wife, good name, at flat 27's one floor below, saw William and the two Canadian soldiers enter the flat at between 10.30 and 11 o'clock. Um, he said they were scruffy and untidy. Um, obviously, no one could remember their names at all. They went into the flat, as mentioned. Uh, William let them in, told them to sit down. He locked the inner door put the key in his it was like a, a a hidden little cupboard behind a, a curtain which is why they couldn't find it so the, when they looked when they looked for the key to try and get out what they did was they picked up i think it was either the key to the outer door which they couldn't get to because the inner door was locked or it was these his uh the keys to his his shop so which is why they couldn't get out uh they opened a bottle of old oh i almost did that I almost gave oh, these bloody questions. Uh, they sat drink, drinking for an hour. Uh, George was on the Chesterfield with William. That's the settee. Uh, Henry was on the armchair. Bill suggested that Henry sleep on the divan in the lounge, which was the uh, there's kind of a little bed in the sitting room, and and that uh, George share a bed with William. Uh, this was agreed. Uh, they said that William appeared to be decent and hospitable. Uh, it, it it seems odd at that point well it's not really odd if you think about it in the right way it seems odd that uh, George and Henry didn't suggest that given the fact that there was two beds there was one in William's room and one in the uh, one in the lounge or there was also a sofa that all three couldn't have had their own beds if it was just boys just needing a place to stay or given the fact that George and Henry were buddies do you know that they could have shared the bed in the the sitting room if they were just buddies but the fact that at this point it's kind of offered that Henry will sleep in the, the on the sofa in the sitting room and George and William will go into William's bedroom and he'll share a bed with this stranger who he's just met as mentioned in the story, the detectives mentioned that someone had briefly uh, uh, used the bed, possibly slept in the bed on the spare sofa. But it, it, by the way it, uh, it looked, it looked like he hadn't slept in there for quite a long time. Uh, the sh sheets were slightly unmade. Uh, so then they all went into William's bedroom. So this is where things get really weird. I was going to put this in the story, but... I didn't want to overlong the story, make the story overlong, and it also it's as mentioned. I want to wanted to focus on what the evidence tells you as opposed to what people say. So uh, Henry's story. Henry says uh, after a short light, short time, William came back into the lounge. He asked Henry to join them in the bedroom. So that's to join Henry uh, to join George and William in his bedroom. Uh, 
George came out of the bathroom with uh, came out of the bathroom. Obviously, don't forget there's the bottle of uh, white wine which is unopened in the bedroom, which was never opened. Uh, George and Henry were wearing only their uh, underpants, and they all sat on the bed drinking. William was only dressed in his pajama top and started to play with their private parts. He put he put out the light and asked them both to. If you if you're uh, easily uh, shocked by sexual things, it's probably best if you switch off now. If not, this is I mean this is nothing big. It's not nothing crude. But if you don't like sexual things, then this next bit may may not be for you. Uh, he started to play with their private parts. He, uh, William put out the light and asked them both to put their cocks in his mouth at the same time. They refused, and according to Henry. Uh, who put the light on William was lying in the centre of the bed George was lying on the other side William turned out the lights off again and asks for a blowjob uh, Henry then in the darkness hears an argument a thud, the lights on saw William lying on the floor covered in blood, groaning he asked uh, George what did you do that for? George said well the bastard was asking for it let's get out of here that's Henry's version. George's version. Uh, obviously he was sharing the bed with William. He woke up to find William had uh, George's cock in his hand. Uh, William put the lights out a bit. Uh, put the lights out again. Uh, the bed, bed clothes were thrown back. George said what the hell are you doing? He got out of bed. Noticed William was only wearing his pyjama bottoms. Uh, William kept trying to fondle uh, George's private parts. Henry entered the bedroom. William started fondling both of them, wanted both of their cocks in his mouth. Uh, George, in a bad temper, called William a dirty bastard. William was half sitting on the bed. George hit William with a bottle. Uh, That makes sense because, obviously, as the evidence says that the... uh, there were fragments of uh, bloodied raffia on the floor, although George wasn't sitting on the bed at the time. He was actually standing up and hit him several times, punched him. William slumped off the bed onto the floor. Oh, oh I've got hiccups. Uh, George said uh, Henry was also wild and was punching Bill several times. Don't forget, Sir Bernard Billsbury said that the attack could have happened uh, from either one or two men. It was hard to determine. Uh... They realised what they had done and decided to change into plain clothes. Uh, They both left their old stinky underwear behind. Uh, George put his battle dress, uh, his khaki uniform, into a brown case and took it, but Henry's was left behind. Uh, Oh, no, sorry. um, No, Henry was wearing his. No, no, no. So, sorry, George's was left on the floor. Sorry, this is all these details. There's so many different details from different people. It's hard to work out who's telling the truth and who remembers things clearly. Uh, what else we got? What else we got? Um, at about roughly one a.m., Charles Charles Boglin again, who was one floor below, said he heard a noise on the fire escape. Um, uh, sounded like someone going past his window, and he heard a thud, which seemed to be a bottle. Um, uh what else we got uh as mentioned you know they nicked the clean pair of pants because they needed a clean pair of pants but they dropped they dropped 
there they'd taken their pants off and left them on the floor that it wasn't a message it was just they'd forgotten about it do you know you're in a panic you just murdered someone your your blood's pumping your brain's thumping do you know you, you don't know what's going on so uh that's why they left all their shite behind they left you know he left his army boots he left his uniform he just wasn't thinking he just do you know it's fight or flight you just want to flee uh what else did they make obviously uh oh can he almost gave away a question then these bloody questions uh what else we got uh yep they left the flat um it's weird that the dates are all wrong on this this is the problem with this case is everyone's memory of the dates is all wrong like um the uh the, the porter says he enters the flat at about one ish but then the the police constable doesn't arrive until half past two and then the detective doesn't ar- uh, arrive until about four everything's all skew if with the uh with fleeing the flat uh they say that they left the flat it was roughly around dawn so i've looked at the dates and dawn at that point would have been at 6 50 a.m which doesn't make sense because they they they'd left at about um they'd left at about uh about one half past one but if they left at like 10 to 7 in the morning that means they spent about six hours five to six hours with the body which doesn't make sense what did they do in a flat they didn't do anything because they didn't touch anything uh they went to the underground from baker street to victoria and then to croydon uh which would make sense if they did leave at that time but if they left at 1 one thirty, then they couldn't have got the tube because the tube wouldn't have been running but they could have got a bus uh they went from victoria to croydon they stayed at the railway bell public house where they spent one night which is where they spent the money that they nicked from his wallet um uh they got rid of william's clothing they had stolen uh and then spent two nights sleeping under the railway arches then decided to surrender and headed back to their unit so on the 19th of october 1942 so just four days later uh henry reported back to uh column headquarters at forest row in sussex uh and reported to sergeant major john ryder uh, who knew that they were absentee and he was arrested for being ab- uh, absent and placed in the guard room they were still wearing battle sh- dress and were disheveled uh, on the 20th of october they were charged with 28 days of field punishment obviously the army doesn't know that they've committed a robbery and a murder uh 21st uh, article in the police gazette uh, a wanted poster a description of uh william raven the attack and his attackers obviously they didn't know his name uh obviously very very kindly in the, in the police gazette article it says william is described uh william is a known associate of sodomites great that's very very sympathetic uh as mentioned to bernard spills we did the post-mortem there was a coroner's inquest at, quest at hammersmith coroner's court on the 6th of april 1943 uh that was quite a couple couple of months later but they it took a long time to get all the pieces of information in there they, they knew exactly what had gone wrong it wrong wrong what happened that night it was just you know they needed to work out who these people were and they by that point they got their list of who they needed to interview uh, and they were working their way through it uh the verdict was that william was murdered by persons or persons unknown um sir bernard spilsby gave evidence and explained how the person died which is one of the questions which i won't give away 
what else have we got? Uh, obviously, this has been playing on uh, all of their minds for quite a while. Uh, on the 17th of July at 11.30am, Detective Inspector Smale went to Headley Down in Hampshire and interviewed Henry. Uh, to account for his movements on the 15th and 16th, he said he was in London with fr- with his friends, uh, George Brinnicum, the gone AWOL. Uh, they basically explained that we, they went to such and such pub, uh, met up with Bill, who was William Raven, went back to his flat. And Henry said, it's been worrying me uh, uh, ever since I would like to tell you what happened. And he made a full statement because of this on the same day, uh, they went to Board Hill Camps in Haywards Heath to interview George uh, to account for those two days uh, George says has Smithy made a statement if he has I will do the same I will help you we met two men and uh, obviously this is William and uh, the other guy with the painted face uh, and went with one called Bill to his flat in Baker Street he was the filthiest man I've ever met I will tell you the truth and they made a statement they were taken to Cannon Street Police Station uh, and placed on remand at Marlborough Police Court, which is just off Carnaby Street, on the 26th of July, 1943, until the 10th of August, where they were charged with murder. Uh, as mentioned, trial began 14th of September, 1943, both charged with murder. Um, but as there was no evidence that both men had gone there for the purposes of robbery, obviously, don't forget, if, it's, if, if you're... Uh, if you murder someone whilst you're committing a robbery, that's a death sentence instantly. If you murder someone, that's a life sentence. But in this case, there was no evidence of robbery and uh, premeditation for robbery. No evidence of premeditation for murder. Looked like a kind of a sex game that had gone wrong or kind of, you know, a, a common assault which had uh, led to uh, a death. So therefore, uh, Henry was acquitted and uh, George was given three years at Wormwood Scrubs. And that was that. Uh, I got some interesting photos online. If you, if you, if your Patreon subscribers, there's, there's no crime scene photos with this one, which is slightly annoying. But uh, we've got uh, some good diagrams of what the flat looked like and the, and the shapes, and you can see, you can see how they escaped, and you can see where all the neighbours are positioned. And I've got, I've got a video that uh, of the outside of the building looks exactly as it did, and some photos, and a photo of William Raven, which I'll probably use. Uh, on the front of the podcast as well um uh and yeah some other interesting stuff as well so uh let's do the questions yeah that was a long ramble let's do some questions right question number one which landmark was william's shop nearest which london landmark was william's shop nearest to uh on regent street the answer was piccadilly circus where the Blackout Ripper picked up many of his victims. Question number two. What was the name of William's shop manager? His name was Wallace Staggle. Good name. Question number three. What three bottles were found in William's sitting room? They were whiskey, rum and cordial. I almost accidentally gave away that it was oh it was called it was an old Nick rum. Uh, it's likely that the old Nick rum was the bottle that was used to smash him over the head because that had a raffia um, 
uh, coating on it as well. Uh, question number four. How much money did William take from the shop till? He took £20 in £1 notes, which is roughly £600 today. Uh, but by the end of the night, he only had about £2 left, which is about, th- about 60 quid. 30, 60, yeah. Uh, re- receipts were found. Uh, he'd obviously he'd been out drinking that night and had some fun with his new pals. But he'd also he'd ordered a lot of clothes. He'd ordered some new clothes from Austin Reed. So uh, yeah, he'd got things on order. Hence, he'd spent a lot of money. Question five: What was William's cause? <coughs> oh dear! What was William's cause of death? According to Sir Bernard Spilsbury, it was brain hemorrhage caused by skull fractures nasty thinking that he'd been lying on the floor 12 to 14 hours yuck uh question six what shape were the blood spatter on william's wall they were pear shaped in a downward trajectory showing that he'd been hit over the head while standing and the blood had kind of hit an angle downwards hence they'd become pear shaped uh question seven what was william's wartime duties William was the manager of the Merchant Navy Supply Association. Question eight. Uh, which science fiction author lived a few doors down from William? Obviously not when he was there. Uh, that was H.G. Wells. Oddly, there's no statues there for H.G. Wells. There's one in, uh, is it Slough? Which is where uh, a War of the Worlds is kind of based. Not in America. I know everyone thinks it's based in America because of the awesome wales version but it's not it's it starts off in slough and then it kind of populates from there uh question nine what three items did william always have on him but his killers did not steal and that was a silver cigarette lighter a silver cigarette case and a silver wristwatch and question number 10 uh name william's three favorite pubs i gave away one of them slightly earlier on they were the York Minster on Dean Street, the Swiss Tavern on Old Compton Street, and the Volunteer on Baker Street. Uh, for those who know Soho, I mean, we've mentioned some of these pubs before. You've got uh, the Swiss Tavern on Old Compton Street is now known as Compton's. Uh, the York Minster uh, on Dean Street is known as the French House. And the Volunteer is still exactly as it was. It's still called the Volunteer. It's still on Baker Street. Uh, the Volunteer, you'll remember from earlier episodes, uh, that was one of the fa- one of the other favourite pubs of the Blackout Ripper. So, uh, given the fact that William lived there and went to that pub quite a lot, um, there's a likelihood that he may have been in the pub at the same time as the Blackout Ripper. Hmm, interesting. Or they may have met. They may not have. Uh, Blackout Ripper's billets, don't forget, were only about a five-minute walk just up the road. So, because uh, he was based out of Regent's Park. And the William's flat, literally, actually it does, it looks over Regent's Park. It hasn't got a nice view because there's a building in the way, but it's got a view. Right, that was that. That's the episode. Hope you enjoyed that. Something different, I thought. I, 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 I always try and give you something different, even if it's a similar style murder i try not to do because you know there's a format to these where we do i tell you the street then we tell the victim's early life and then we go into what happened just before the murder then we tell the murder then we do the investigation then we do the arrest and then we go to trial 
with this one I decided I thought let's do something entirely different so uh yeah hope you enjoyed that something different and also it's to show you know I think I think too often that people if you listen to too much true crime podcasts like I know sometimes if I post things and I go oh what do you think happened in this case and someone goes oh I think it was an assassin oh I think he was involved in like uh, some kind of gangland killing da, da, da. and it's like mm, I think you've been listening to too much true crime I think you need to start sitting down and going okay what's logical because normally the logical simple answer is is the right answer things aren't complicated and exciting and i know sometimes people want it to be but it isn't it's just you know this is a simple murder just two guys didn't plan to murder anyone didn't plan to commit a robbery turned up there something happened during a sexual experience whether this is this is one of the theories i'm working that i was working on is whether um william and george went into the bedroom and henry didn't know that they were gay because Henry seems to be a little bit naive and maybe he heard a noise, went into the bedroom, saw Henry and George having sex because don't forget uh, sorry, Henry and George, William and George having sex because don't forget according to the autopsy uh, William had just had anal sex and he was a passive agent maybe he didn't know that George was gay as well saw it, George got angry said oh, he, you know he tried to, he, he was trying to uh, have sex with me or something and then attacked uh, William to defend himself and he, in his own good honour. Who who knows? Or do you know? It's it's hard to work out really what went on. So uh, so this do you know? This is like most murders. You don't plan for a murder to happen. It just kind of happens. Your emotions get heightened. Something triggers it off. Bang! Someone ends up dead. You don't plan to steal from them, but you know you're a bit broke. You look down. You see a wallet. You go. I'll have that you run out you don't really think about it so that's just what most murders are they're simple they're irrational they're not planned although if you listen to too many true crime podcasts don't forget they're cherry picked I try and tell you all of the murders and try and make them interesting if you listen to the shite that comes out by Wondery they will just tell you the most interesting and fascinating ones which have plot twists and you can turn them into movies and you can make a lot of money whereas what i try to do like with last week's episode the the beating of um baby richard there's no mystery there it's uh, two people who were uncaring who didn't like the baby who, you know woman in a bad situation and then she handed it over to another woman and the, the the man hated the sound of the baby so he beat it to death no real mystery there do you know they didn't make it. They didn't make lots of money off it. They didn't do it because it was uh, a premeditated. And they wanted to be clever, and they were trying to get some kind of insurance scam off them. Do you know, as you expect in something like that, it was just, you know, people are irrational. They're they're at times stupid. They make mistakes. They full of regret, and I think that's what I tried to. to telly with murder mile is real stories about real people committing real murders it's not pre-planned it's not premeditated so even blackout ripper you look at the blackout ripper not pre-planned not premeditated he's he doesn't even take weapons with him to uh these murders it's 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 all it's all instinct he, he sees a woman sometimes he likes her sometimes he doesn't like it if he doesn't like it he will kill her but he doesn't have a weapon on her he doesn't have a plan he just goes with what his gut feeling is what's what's in his guts and that's what most murder is it's it's irrational it's illogical it's um it's human and hopefully that's what comes across with this one. Just a, it looks complicated, but it's not. It's just a very simple murder. Anyway, that was a 
That was a lot of waffle. Right, I'm going to switch off now. I'm going to switch off, have my tea, have some cakes. If you're out and about, have yourselves a good day. Stay safe. Be happy. Say hi to people. I've started doing that again. I've realised that, you know, being isolated for so long because of the virus, I've stopped saying hello to people. So I've started saying hello to strangers or just giving them a wave, Joe. It makes everyone feel nice. Uh, Apart from that, stay safe. Be good. uh, Be happy. Uh, Have a good week. Be good. Bye. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.